Welcome to episode 303 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got an interview today. Interview today, special 303 episode. 303 is the area code where I grew up. Oh, fun facts. So just think about that for a little bit. This is a pretty <laughs> momentous day for me. <laughs> uh, I, I know what to try for uh, your pen code, like your pen code. For yeah, yeah. 30303. <laughs> and on this momentous day, yeah, we have an interview today. First one in a while. Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. Uh, actually, we've already uh, we've already done the interview and it's over and it was good. So I'm excited to share it with people. Yeah. But before we get into the interview, we want to thank our sponsor, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Yes, thank you to Abstract for sponsoring this episode. Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. Today, most design teams work on multiple versions of the same file, and you're often duplicating efforts, and as a result of all that, you end up overriding and losing work. So design teams are still spending a frustrating amount of time searching for files and exporting them from one tool and importing them into another, consolidating feedback from a bunch of different sources, and you never really know what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. Abstract solves this for you. All of these problems and more. It's like GitHub, but for designers. It's a version-controlled source of truth for design work that brings the entire design workflow into a single unified place, not only for designers, but also for developers, PMs, and any other stakeholders in your company so that you can collaborate better and keep the work moving forward. It's end-to-end collaboration, everything from versioning your design files to storing them, requesting reviews, collecting feedback, presenting work, and then when things are getting built, you can actually use Abstract to hand off work to the developers to get things built. All of this is on a platform that works both on and offline. Yeah, in just the last couple of years, Abstract has acquired over 100,000 users. That's people from companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp and thousands of others across 75 different countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers and developers and project managers all become more intertwined, the team at Abstract believes that a more collaborative and open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. Today, Abstract seamlessly integrates with Sketch, the design tool of choice for many of you out there. And in 2019, they're going to continue to roll out support for more file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. If all this sounds like something you're ready to try, you can do that for free today. They have a 30-day free trial at abstract.com. Go to abstract.com, sign yourself up, get your team on board, start designing with a version-controlled source of truth. It's game-changing, and it's all available at abstract.com. So thank you, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Thanks, Abstract. All right, Marshall, before we get into our interview today, we have a little bit of follow-up. Yeah, so last week when I was sharing my modded Apple TV uh, Siri remote thing, we were talking about the tile, and I mentioned how in WWDC with the new Find My app, it looked like they had done all the work to create their own tile network, like with their own little tile device, if they wanted to, but they didn't announce that. And I was kind of surprised because there had been rumors that it was going to happen. And it looks like they did all the work. But anyways, a video came out from The Verge a couple days after we recorded. And I included this in the show notes from last week. But in case you didn't see it, in this video, the, the guy doing the review of iOS 13 mentions this exact same thing. So I'll put the video in the show notes for this week too, but check it out because I'm not crazy. I'm not a crazy person. Somebody else thought. (laughs) This is a thing thing that could exist. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Cool. And I think it's probably going to happen in September. Like it seems like all the groundwork has been laid. They just have to announce the device itself. And hopefully they'll be small and really 
really nicely designed. It'll be it'll be an awesome replacement for towel because those are too big for my for my money. A little chunky, yeah. Yeah, a little little chunky. I mean, it's still tiny, but it's also chunky. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that it's as small as it. Like we're living in the future, but still, I want it to be <laughs> less intrusive. Like I want to be able to put it on my keys without it being a huge thing, or like attach it to something even smaller. You know. Agreed. Well, that's cool. So video in the show notes. And then we also have some nice words that people sent in this week. So let's see here. We got a new iTunes review from Mac Geek J. Guessing your name's J. J wrote, Brian and Marshall break down everything from basic concepts to more complex ideas in an easy to understand format. This not only increases your design knowledge, but helps you better communicate your own ideas, which is always half the battle when you're designing products and services. This is a must listen for anyone creating products. Wow. Five stars. So thanks, Mac Geek J. And thank you to everyone else who's left us iTunes reviews. We love that. Yeah, thank you. We also got a nice tweet, a couple tweets from our uh, episode last week on designing dark patterns. <laughs> which I got to say, Brian, was in itself, the title of that episode was kind of a dark pattern. Gotta a little say. bit of a clickbaity dark pattern. <laughs> uh, this first tweet comes from a person whose name is more complex than my brain can construct vowels and pronunciations <laughs> for. Okay, we'll go Paul Zemankiewicz. Yep. Sorry, we 100% butchered that. Said, I really enjoyed this one. The discussion around designing dark patterns is super interesting. Great job. Thank you for the tweet. We also got another tweet from Divya Talk who says... With this week's episode discussion about dark patterns, especially when leaving a service, I instantly thought of Headspace's subscription cancellation flow. It was so delightful and supportive that later on it did make it easier for me to resubscribe. So look at that. Headspace leading the charge. I love Headspace just in general. Like it's it's such a great product and, and great company and, and great service. And I'm not surprised at all that they have a good cancellation flow. That's great. Happy to hear. Um, so well done, Headspace. And thank you for the, the tweet, Divya. We also have a little bit of news this week. I think at the time of this reading, it'll be a couple weeks behind, but I just wanted to call out that Revision Path, another design podcast, recently crossed their 300th episode. Nice. uh, Which is, of course, a milestone that we also recently celebrated. So if you haven't heard of Revision Path, Revision Path is an award-winning weekly interview podcast that focuses on showcasing some of the best black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers from all over the world. Uh, explores the stories, processes, experiences, insights, and creative inspirations of these awesome creators. And so for their 300th episode, they had on a designer named Hannah Beachler, and she did work on Black Panther, Creed, Moonlight, uh, a bunch of films. That's awesome. She's worked with Beyonce on Lemonade. She worked on the On the Run 2 tour with Beyonce and Jay-Z. So can I be Hannah Beachler? Can, can I be this person? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, congrats to Revision Path. And if you haven't heard of Revision Path, you can check it out. We'll have a link to their podcast in the show notes, but it's now produced by Glitch Media. So the URL is a little long, but it's glitch.com slash culture slash Revision Path, or you can find them on Twitter at Revision Path. So congrats on the 300 milestone. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, let's do an interview, Brian. So today's interview has been a long time coming. It originated from a listener question, which we'll explain more about when we start talking to this person. But today's guest is Stacy Law. She was previously the design director at Clover Health, where she helped build a team from four employees to more than 500 employees in her four years there. And we get to talk all about team building. So great interview with Stacy. Strap in. Got a lot to learn. Uh, so thank you to Stacy for coming on the show. And we'll catch you after the interview. Let's go. 
And we're here with Stacy Law. She is the product and design lead at Resolve to Save Lives on the Prevent Epidemics team. Possibly the longest title known to mankind. Hi, Stacy. <laughs> Hi, Stacy. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. For people who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I was the former head of design at Clover Health in San Francisco, and I recently left a year ago, and now I'm leading product and design at a nonprofit based here in New York. Resolve to save lives. Resolve to save lives on the Prevent Epidemics team. Yes, which we just learned was is the same organization where our, our good pal Daniel Burka works, which you mentioned that, that now you two will be co-workers. That's right. He brought me out of retirement. <laughs> yeah, well, we want to dig into that. Uh, but... All right. So Stacy, this has been an interview a long time coming. So for listeners, we received a question from one of you a long, long time ago. And Marshall and I did not know how to answer it. And so we began hunting for the perfect person to answer this question. And it led us to Stacy. So I'll read this question that came from a listener, I think back in May, perhaps. So this question says, the context is this person just started a new job as a designer at a startup. And this person asks, I want to start this new position with a good framework in place so that I can lay the groundwork for a design team while managing the realities of working at a startup. How would you lay out and schedule a plan, goals, checklists, process documentation, etc., for yourself and for a team you've been tasked with growing? So Stacy, tell us a little bit about your background building teams and then help us tell people how to build teams. <laughs> Gigantic question. We'll break it down, though. So maybe start with your your background with Clover and, and building teams there. Sure. So my background is I was a product designer for several years. I worked at agencies and I worked at Yammer for two years. Um, so I met the founders of Clover there. Chris Gale was the VP of engineering at Yammer. And when he left to start Clover, he recruited me to be a designer at Clover. So I started out as a designer and I had never hired or built a team before. So I made a lot of mistakes, which I'm happy to share what I did wrong. So many mistakes, because I think moving from an IC going into a management role and building a design team, like there's no playbook for it. Um, when you go to a startup, you know, there's your founders. And I was quite early at Clover. I was, you know, one of the first 10 people there. So I didn't have a lot of design mentorship where I was at. Yeah, I was there for, you know, I, I worked there for four years. And I was an IC, I would say for about six months, and we raised money fairly quickly. And so I had to hire a team out within my first year of being there. So I empathize a lot with this designer at the startup who's now <laughs> hiring a design team because I was like, I just joined to design software. I didn't exactly join to build a team. So I mean, that's wild, right? Like most places where you learn to hire, you at least have some infrastructure like there is a hiring process in place. And it sounds like maybe you were so early, there wasn't even that? No, there was not that. That's crazy. So how did it start? Well, I've, I've worked at big companies before. Yammer was acquired by Microsoft. So I understood how performance reviews were done and rankings and leveling. It's not like that at a startup at all. There's, just, there's <laughs> only a handful of people. You mean you don't set aside three months <laughs> to do calibration of all your reports? <laughs> Peer reviews? Yeah. <laughs> You do not. Yeah. And when I started, I was leading both the product and the brand side. And brand was also new to me. I'm more of a UX interaction designer. So there was a lot I had to learn very quickly. Yeah, those are very different disciplines. Very, 
very different. And when we were looking to hire out the design team, you know, I wanted to focus on hiring product designers in-house because we outsourced a lot of our brand work. It's it's really difficult to start early brand work with hiring an internal team for that. So we used an agency to help us get started. But as far as a product designer goes, some of the mistakes I made was I just didn't interview enough people. I didn't know what I was looking for. I was just like, is there any designer that wants to work on health <laughs> health insurance? Oh. Like that was hard enough in itself. And anyone that said yes, I was like, I just want to talk to them and get them to join and that was one of my early mistakes was just like doing due diligence and thinking long and hard about what are the qualities that I'm looking for? How much experience do I want this person to have? What are the values I'm looking for in them? And I just didn't think about that when I was hiring. I just wanted to fill seats instead of really being intentional about the kind of team I wanted to build, which I later learned how to do. How did those mistakes play out? It sounds like maybe the wrong people got hired or or the process took longer than it needed to or what ended up happening? I would say like the things that were apparent was the performance wasn't you know, what I expected early on. I felt like I hired people who were perhaps a little too junior than what we needed early on. I think when you are first building out your team, you want to hire people who can wear many hats and can be more senior to to support me. Whereas I was spending a lot of time trying to course correct them. And I think that was not the best use of my time early on. There's the phrase hire fast or hire slow, fire fast. Did you have to to get into that as well of letting people go or or did it become a challenge of just mentorship and, and ramping those people up? I think a mistake I made was doing that the other way around. I <laughs> hired fast and I fired slow. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I think you want to put people through a performance review and try and get them to where they need to be. And sometimes that just doesn't work out as quickly as, you know, you'd want it to. Um, so I think that, you know, I should have fired some people earlier than I than I did. Wow. Yeah, that's a hard position to be put in, right? Especially if if the startup's growing quickly and every person still like is contributing something, it's hard to even maybe step take that first step back. Yeah. And I didn't have that pattern recognition of being able to properly like assess performance. It's like you have a feeling that things aren't working out. You know that the work is not where you want it to be, but I just didn't have that pattern recognition of working with enough designers to know like, is this normal or not? So how did you start going about solving that? Like, did you, did the founders help you out or did you have to look externally to other startup people to get advice on this? Or was it still just figuring this out on your own as you went? Yeah, it was a mix of all of those things. It was a lot of conversations with my founder who he also wanted me to learn from the experience. And I think that although he felt a certain way about the team that I was hiring, he wanted me to own the decisions that I was making, which I also slowed things down, but I think it helped me learn a lot by by doing that. And I also talked to other other design managers who were in a similar position. And I was like, what should I be doing? Should I, what is a rubric that I should have to assess this person? Because clearly what I'm doing now like isn't working. So it helped me figure out like how to set up my own performance review and to help facilitate better one-on-ones with me and my reports on what expectations are and how to, you know, really look at those week by week and set goals for each other and then have a more, you know, like objective conversation about it. I know it's been years at this point, but do you have any recollection on what the tactical things were there, like the specific things that you implemented around 
early performance reviews or things that you did to guide a productive one-on-one when it's such a small company? I think something that I did that was really great and helpful, not just for the design team, but across the company, is that being in a leadership role, working on leveling and expectations with your product and engineering and data science leads was really, really important. That, That way, I mean, it was something that I was struggling with, and I also noticed that other functions had the same issues. And so we just had wider leadership discuss, uh, discussions about it. Like, what do we expect for someone who is, you know, at a level one or two, three, a senior, and make sure that, you know, that's consistent across the company so that when we call someone uh, senior, that we have a similar understanding of what that means at this company. And so I didn't do it in a silo. And that was something that was very helpful. I think it it gets harder as you get bigger and different roles don't always map to each other. But early on, I thought that it was when we were like sub 100 people, that was a uh, really helpful framework to have. Yeah, I'm really curious about the leveling portion of this because I've always been fascinated by and confused by how leveling works at companies and then between companies because the wording is so hard to get specific enough where there's clear boundaries between levels, but also mm-hmm. remains general enough that that people could, you know, cross those boundaries from time to time in their day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found that tricky and, and even still find that tricky. Did you find anything in that in your leveling documentation process that was useful? Of course. It's super tricky. And when it comes down to it, it is a very subjective thing. You know, like judging someone who is like in the middle and in some of the areas they may be excelling, but then in you know, the the leadership that you expect them to have, it may be lower. So it's really, it forces you to have really hard conversations about what those expectations are. And at the end of the day, that's a hard call that the, that you have to make as a head of design is like, is this person, do I feel like they're at that next level or not? And can I have a conversation with them about why they're not there yet or why I'm not promoting them? And how did that actually end up manifesting in the one-on-ones? Was that, was this like a weekly thing or, or did it, become quarterly or monthly? Or how often was that cycle of feedback? Yeah, I would have weekly one-on-ones with my reports. And I think a nice way to do it is your weekly one-on-ones should be about, you know, catching each other up, what's going on that week, what are problems they're having. But as far as goals go, I think like checking in once a month is sufficient for that. um, Because I think it takes longer to see, you know, that type of behavior uh, change. I think like you don't see a lot happen week to week. So I would do like goal check-ins once a month. Got it. Okay. So you're at Clover for a little bit. When do things start to break? Or I guess what were the breaking points as the team grew? Like was it a certain size (laughs) of, of number of designers or scale scope of the product? Yeah. I think for me where things started, inflection points for me were, a big decision we had to make was when to separate brand and product. And I think that's something that the two of you brought up was that they're very different things. And I think that while we want to keep design together, there is a point where both teams were quite large. I was managing around 12 people that spanned product and brand. And it was a lot. It was really difficult for me. And it just made a lot more sense that I oversaw product because the brand side was a lot more focused on growth and acquisition. And then product was dealing more with like, 
once, you know, someone is in, what is their experience? And then how do we work with doctors? And they were two very different things. So what did it look like to go through that split? So what it looked like to go through that split was we hired a VP of brand and we had a separate marketing team. And so the brand designers on my team were reorged and moved into that team. And then I was focused on building out the product design team. I could imagine maybe like conflicted feelings, but also perhaps sighing a breath of relief, like, oh, yes, finally, I can focus on one smaller thing. It was tough. It was really tough. Because I think being a head of design, I had in my mind that I wanted to control the end to end experience. And so it was really hard to let go of this team that I had built. But it was just a lot for for me to oversee. And I just didn't have, there's few companies that organize that way. And I was lucky to be mentored by the head of design at Airbnb. And he said, even at Airbnb, while he oversees, you know, everything that happens with design, that they do have like a separate marketing and brand team. Right. That makes sense. I'm curious though, this part about letting things go. This is something that I struggle with, not on the the managing side, but on the product side. It's like, I fall in love with the things that I'm working on and it's hard to hand it off or delegate it. Did you find strategies to do that, I guess, through this transition and then future transitions? I mean, I think it was it was ultimately a good decision because it was just a, a lot of workload for me. But yeah, passing it on to folks that you also trust was important. And I think like I had to rewire my brain a little bit and know that like my strength is in UX and interaction and product design and I'll have better success building out that team than trying to manage, you know, brand where I, that's not my area of expertise, even though I love it, I appreciate it. It's just not my strong suit. So really doing that like self-reflection too, of where can I deliver the most value? And at this stage of the company, it's probably not on the brand side. I hear you. I'm just, I still feel like there's this school of thought that says focus on the things that you're really good at, but I find yeah. myself drawn to improve the things that I'm bad at. Yeah. Is that something that you faced? Of course, of course. Cause as I, it was a learning opportunity for me. And as I did it, I was like, this is really interesting. And it's something new that I'm learning, which is why you join a startup. So you can try a lot of different things, Right. but you also have to think about the business goals and you know, when we're in hyper growth mode, the amount of time it would take for me to learn brand to be great at it would be a detriment to the company. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that some, something you could go back and, and pursue in another life maybe? Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make me sad. It's just, it makes me actually proud that I was able to get the company to that point and then to hire a high caliber person to come in and, you know, take it over so like sending your kid to college <laughs> yeah. it's, it's sad but you know they're yeah. flying they're leaving the nest <laughs> yeah well speaking of leaving the nest so what happened with the design team as it continued growing so it's split brand and product you're now leading product what happened next so i'm now leading product and i only have i think three designers on product and i need to hire i need to at least double the team yeah and so i had the end of i had one quarter to double the team, which if anyone knows what it's like to hire designers in the Bay area, it was, it was a, it was tough. You can cuss. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was fucking hard. (laughs) There we go. Uh, So what I did was I, the, the great thing about reorging and moving 
brand designers into another org was like, I had to focus sheerly on recruiting. And I was hyper-focused on, on building that, on growing the team, which was really good because I was able to spend more of my time on that. I wasn't distracted and I changed everything up in that time period. Um, we had a lot of trouble with top of the funnel candidates. And so I started a meetup at that time. Um, that meetup now has almost 2000 people in it. And it was more for, it was more for me trying to build a community around designers and healthcare. We didn't, we didn't hire folks out of the meetup, but I think it was just great on for branding and to get our name out there of what we were doing, because it's hard to get designers excited about working for a health insurance company Yeah, when you have so many options in the Bay Area for mm-hmm. great designers to go to. So that, that was helpful of sharing the impact that we were trying to have. And I did a ton of interviewing, a lot of coffee chats, and I ended up hiring five designers in three months, which was, which is incredible. Yeah. 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 That's great. Good designers too. (laughs) That's even more incredible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of them ended up staying for over two years. So I would say it was pretty good. That's great. That's an eternity in the Bay area. Yeah. (laughs) Can we go back to something you just said though, that you were experiencing problems at the top of the funnel? Was it problems of talent or problems of volume? Both? Um, It was problems of like, People hadn't heard about us before. You hear Clover Health, you're like, oh, what's that? And it's a small company. We had just raised a Series A, so not, you know, super well known yet. It's not a sexy industry to be in. And I also didn't have a lot of recruiting resources. I didn't have any recruiting resources, actually. They were focused on hiring engineers. And so I really had to manage the recruiting process on my own early on, doing a lot of the coordination and scheduling, which is not something that (laughs) I had done before. I mean, this is so hard. And I think people are still struggling with it today, especially in the Bay Area, right? It's like you're not only competing against the impression of an unsexy industry, but you're also competing against the Facebooks and Googles and Apples, like these other Mm -hmm. companies that exist next door. How did you go about essentially pitching an unsexy industry to to senior people that sort of would be able to pick those other places, more conventionally attractive companies? Well, I had worked at large companies before. I had spent some time at Microsoft and Facebook, so I knew what those cultures were like, and I knew what the trade-offs you make from going to a big company versus being one of the first designers at a startup. I joined Clover for, you know, a lot of reasons. I wanted to have more impact in my work. I wanted to have more autonomy and I also wanted to do a lot of different things. And I think that's a lot harder to do when you go to, you know, a Microsoft where there's 120,000 employees. It's like your role is pretty defined what you need to be doing there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you're also looking for a different mindset and a different profile when you're looking for someone who's joining a startup. And that's the pitch I had. And if people didn't have those same, that weren't looking for those same things, it was pretty clear that it wasn't a fit. And, you know, I was like happy to talk to them too about those trade-offs and what it's like when you go to a bigger company. Yeah. How'd you make that pitch? I mean, I'm assuming even the financial compensation might be different. Yeah. Yeah. I was just very, I was very honest about it. I'm not a good like salesperson, (laughs) you know, it's just like, Hey, like this is what it is. Like this is the trade-off you're making in terms of comp. And I'll tell you what the comp range for these larger companies are. And, 
you know, I somehow convinced five people to, to join. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that when you, when you start to get to know people and you learn about what they care about, it's, you know, the designers I early, that I hired early on, you know, they wanted to just get a lot of experience in a short period of time. They wanted to, they were very excited to like, you know, not have a super defined role, but to have a lot of ownership. So it worked out, but I think it's pretty clear, depending on where you're at in your life stage and what you're looking for, you can balance like, okay, what am I trading off when I go to a startup versus like going to a Google or a Facebook? Right. I was honest, I couldn't, I couldn't beat them on comp, but our comp was pretty good for a startup. But you know, there's also like the equity trade off and explaining what that looks like. Yeah, that's a good point. And then there are the intangibles that you've explained, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it will be an exciting adventure at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. Not that big companies aren't exciting. Sorry, Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think that a lot of designers want to, want to find impact and meaning in their work. And working in healthcare is one way to do that. And I think we have a, you know, Clover has a very compelling mission that not a lot of companies can, can offer something so uh, direct, the impact that you would have on someone's health. So... You know, I realize we've gotten this far into the conversation and we never explained what it was that Clover does. <laughs> details, details, Brian, who cares? So that's our bad. So what is what is that magic sauce that they bring? Yeah, so Clover Health is in Medicare Advantage Insurance Company. And when we started, we were just based in New Jersey. And the hypothesis we had was if we can get ahead in preventative care for our members, that you would ultimately cut down costs for insurance companies long term. Um, so that was our lofty hypothesis. And uh, on the design team side, there are so many interesting design challenges we had because we were designing software for our internal staff, which included customer service reps who were talking to our members day to day, and also for our clinical team that was out uh, visiting members in their home. Okay. And then we expanded and also created software for physicians as well because we care coordination is a big deal in healthcare. It's hard to know what your specialists are doing versus your primary care doctors. And so we were, you know, we were also designing software to show a similar profile of our members to all of these different people that were providing care for them. And it was, you know, compelling for me to join Clover Health because we were focused on a population that not a lot of people create technology for. It's like people who are 65 and older who are trying to manage multiple chronic diseases and are elderly. And I just felt like that's a population that could use more attention with technology. Tell me more there. What what are some of the specific things that you did to design for that audience? Like what's different about the output of a user interface for those people versus, I don't know your conventional like B2C social app or, you know, Yammer or something like that. Like The interesting thing is that they don't see a UI. So how do you design the experience for them where the nurse that they're talking to or the customer service person they're on the phone with knows what's going on with them by just glancing at their screen. But for the person on the other end, you know, they shouldn't know that any, you know, any of this is happening in the background. So that was a big design challenge, but it was super fun because you're really looking at service design and how is technology not the center of it, like providing just enough information so that person can do their job and provide excellent service, but not get in the way of what they're trying to do. Yeah. Like as you were saying that it brought to mind, sometimes when I go to a doctor's office, like I recently had shoulder surgery, you'll go into a room and be having a conversation with the doctor 
and they'll be staring at their screen the whole time typing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's actually really distracting for me to sit there and have a conversation totally. with somebody where yeah. yeah, they are interfacing with me through a screen even though we're in the same room. It was weird, but it sounds maybe similar to what you're describing. Very similar because, you know, you also have to balance on the technology side. You want to be able to capture a lot of data because when you're doing population health, like you need to have a lot of data about your members so that you can, you know, make smart inferences from it. And that's something that we had to balance on the, on the design team. Like, how do we get this data that we need, but also like have that nurse provide a great experience? And that was like a constant struggle and balance that we had to design for. Right. And so how did that end up getting distributed among the team? It was eight product designers at this point. Mm-hmm. The way that we distribute the team was we... We didn't use the term squads at Clover, but it was like a squad where you had a designer with a PM with an engineering lead and they worked on a product together. So there there was not a lot of interaction with like a lot of the designers on the same product, but you know, designers were responsible for one product and then we would have our own meetings to get each other up to speed on, you know, what everyone was was doing. But we didn't we didn't always have like two designers on a project, for example. We just our team wasn't that large. The internal knowledge sharing is an interesting problem as people are off doing their own things. That's the opportunities for different kinds of patterns to be designed, different tools to be built to solve the same kind of problem, like the inconsistency spreads. So how did you combat that? Or or when did that become a problem that you realized you had to combat? It's tough because I think that you want to be able to try a lot of things, which also creates like a lot of inconsistencies. And I think that designers are always trying to clean it up and make the design <laughs> system, you know, you're desi- you're uh-huh. making that design system and it's, it's always evolving and it's always changing. And so I wasn't, I wasn't super strict about being super consistent. Like we had design principles, which I was really proud of because I think that as long as we are designing f- for those principles that the inconsistencies, like we'll shake out and be able to work it out. But it was, I mean, I don't have a good answer for this. It's always a work in progress. And we were working on a design system at the same time. And that person was gathering what everyone was doing and, you know, bringing these decisions to the team of like, hey, we have all of these different button types, like, let's make a decision and choose two or three that we're going to use. And so like that was helpful was having someone that was owning that at least. Got it. Do you happen to remember what the design principles that you came up with actually were? I'm really interested in how you would principle this field of work and like medical technology, what the principles would be. So we had uh, four principles. The first one was respect our users. Um, The second one was to be direct. The third one is empower our people. And the fourth one was reveal the story. Hmm. And what was nice about these principles was that we had, they're not, it's not like a rubric, but we had little checkpoints for them of on the back. So I created, we created cards for these principles so that we could use them during design critiques and to share them with uh, the product team and engineering team so that we had a similar language about how we were critiquing our, our product. And I thought that was really helpful. So on the back of these cards that we made, we would have these little things like for respect our users, for example, like does this design you know, respect HIPAA and compliance rules? Does it use words and phrases that are familiar to the user? And so these things that you could ask yourself as you're critiquing it or making the design to just keep 
at least keep each other consistent on the principal basis. I'll have to share these with you after so that it gives you a better idea of what I'm talking yeah, about Yeah, we can put them in the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things I was wondering about is you kind of have this problem of you need to be trustworthy. You need to be like official or, or, or feel that way from a, from a product standpoint. But you also need to convey a lot of information in a way that is digestible and hopefully friendly. Like h- how did you walk that line or how did you make those considerations? While being HIPAA compliant. <laughs> Small detail. Without going to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think to start, you know, on when we were first building our product, it was internal and it was for our, you know, internal team. And I think that our branding agency actually did a really nice job of helping with the colors and the tone that we were trying to, you know, get across. And we brought those brand elements into our product. So I think even that is a way that you can lighten it up and it doesn't look like your typical, you know, healthcare software is just paying attention to like, you know, the color and the typography that you use, but we didn't, you know, we didn't get too crazy with, you know, using graphics or things that were too playful because you're right. There is a very serious topic that we're, that we're trying to show, uh, you know, we're showing a lot of data about someone who has like diabetes and hypertension. Yeah, very private. Yeah. You're not going to insert like little cartoon characters. <laughs> in it. So we were, that, that was a very strong choice that we made was to not use, you know, like illustrations in our product that were too, too childish. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. We leaned, we leaned more on, you know, like color and typography and shapes. Gotcha. That's great. One thing, just we're getting to the end of the this listener question. We've worked our way through each of these points. But the last part this person asked about, you know, building a design team at a startup was when do processes come into place? Like when do you decide that a new process needs to exist or decide that an old process should be, be removed? Because it is so chaotic. There's so much happening on, on the product itself that it's certainly in my experience at smaller companies, process can be a scary thing. It's like, oh no, this is going to slow us down. It's it's more it's more time not building product. How did you approach process, I, I guess, broadly speaking? And maybe there's some examples that come to mind. There are these pretty clear, they're not super clear, but there's these inflection points in the company when you're growing, going from like your different fundraising rounds and also like how many people you've hired and... I can't give like, you know, there aren't like dates or anything like that, but it was something that was helpful for me was I was pretty diligent about documentation. And so I know that while there's a million things that you're trying to juggle, you know, working at a startup, just always document whatever it is you have and it will, it will go from there. Um, So I think that was like the one thing that we were good about maybe too good at, <laughs> there was too much documentation that we're like, what do we look at? What's the most recent document? But around like performance reviews or, you know, just your hiring practice of, I would document everything from what do I, what questions do I ask in a phone screen? And, you know, what do I ask in an on-person onsite? And what am I looking for during the onsite? Just so that I could scale myself because, you know, it was, it's impossible for you to do, to do everything. And as the team grows, this is a way for them to learn as well. The ICs that joined, like they hadn't hired a team either, but when they got involved in the recruiting process, this also helped them grow. And I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but I think documentation like saved me 
time and time again. And that, and it will just evolve that the processes will evolve as your company grows. Yeah, it makes sense. I think the documentation part is necessary, but incredibly complicated because it becomes like a, it grows at an exponential rate based on every person creating documentation, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like the nodes connecting documents increases at an exponential rate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a hard, hard thing to keep up with. What about like on the design process side, like internal collaboration or even figuring out, oh, you know, it's time to break people apart into different squads or these people work really well together and we need to figure out a way to get them together. Like how did, how did some of those internal processes start getting formed? Yeah, I'm going to break that up into two separate things. And so there's the, like the design team process where the regular check-ins that we have, I think those are pretty scalable no matter what size your team is. Um, so what we would do is we would do a stand up at the beginning of every week. And that can just happen over in Slack of like, here are my plans for the week. Here are problems that I've had last week. And then also like, here's a win that I had last week. And we share that with each other every week. And then we would do, you know, design reviews with the product team on Tuesdays. And then we would have design crit on Thursdays. Um, so we would share what we were working on so that you can get ready for the next week when we had design review on Tuesdays. What was the difference between review and crit? So review, you do it with your product managers and maybe like the engineering lead will join, Mm -hmm. but design crit is just for the design team. Right, right, okay. Lower stakes. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) More open-ended and, you know, we have a lot of fun with each other. So it was like a safe space to share just whatever crazy idea you were working through. Okay, so that was the first part. Yeah, yeah. And the second part is like, as your team grows and you're looking at who should I be hiring and what's the team makeup, this is where I started to bring in a lot of like, you know, worksheets. We would have this thing called design camp every year where we would go away for two or three days and just work on, you know, team building stuff, but also I would have them assess themselves on like, what are your strengths and and weaknesses? And then I would use that to kind of assemble like who could be helping each other out within this team. Like we're small and we have to play to each other's play to each other's strengths and also like help each other grow. And so I would facilitate a lot of those sessions with my team as well. And I think in the hiring process that comes out too, is like, we know that we're super strong on like, you know, service design and mapping, but we're not doing so great on, you know, UI or visual. So when we're making this next hire, like that's something that we're going to really put a lot of emphasis on. On the hiring side, did you ever become more lax about this hiring senior people requirement and start hiring more juniors? Yes, definitely. When did that happen though? It happened when I had like one or two strong senior people. So pretty early then? Pretty early because I think something that bothered me quite a bit when I would talk to other startups or other companies is this overemphasis on only hiring senior people. And it's like, yeah, you want the best people. You want people who can come in and just do the work. But I think it's also important to grow designers and to have a diverse team. And I don't think that happens when you just hire super senior people. And so when I had one or two really strong senior folks, I started to flesh out like hiring more mid and junior level people just to make sure that I had senior level support there for junior people that I was going to bring in. And I think that's what's tough about hiring junior people really early is that they don't have that mentorship that they need so they can they can grow. Yeah. Do you have advice for people that are in that situation? Like especially people outside of 
the Bay Area, outside of maybe major cities, or even more broadly, like people that just don't have product experience in their portfolio yet? Do you have advice for them to get hired at a place like a Clover Health? Yeah. When I talk to junior designers about how to get started, my advice to them is to try and just do a lot of work and pick up, you know, side things. You know, when I actually, when I hired one of our early junior people, she came out of general assembly and her background was in, in journalism. And I took a bet on her because I, you know, I came from a journalism background and I kind of stumbled my way into being a product designer. So I think I'm a, maybe I'm just like a rare hiring manager, but I think finding people who have crossover talents was something that luckily for me, like this person ended up being a rock star on our team. But I think that skills are very transferable. So if you're junior and, you know, you have critical thinking skills and you're able to synthesize information, you know, maybe like, you know, visualizing it is that thing you need to work on, but showing that, you know, you can excel in these other ways is really important. Did you ever find yourself at odds with this like fire fast sort of mantra that you didn't have at the beginning, but maybe developed and and hiring junior people? Like, how do you discern when somebody's not doing well versus, oh, they just need a little bit more mentorship? Um, is it like a timeline thing or, or are there more clear signals? That's a good question. And I think that the pattern recognition that I developed over the past four years was, I think when it comes to hard skills, I can teach people how to, how to be better at being a designer with like, you know, how to use Sketch or whatever tool we're using. I think the harder thing is around soft skills. It's like if they're set in their ways around doing things a certain type of way, they're not collaborative or they don't have self-awareness. I think like those are red flags to me. And I got better at sussing those out in the interview process um, because I think sometimes we overemphasize the the hard skills. Like, yes, you have to be able to like know the basics around like typography and using a grid and all of those things. But I don't know, it's, it's kind of an art, <laughs> I think. I can, I think I've gotten better at being able to suss out like what I can teach someone versus like, this is just who they are. I see. So more about building up the experience. There's not necessarily like a checklist. No. Okay. <laughs> no, there's no checklist. I want no the cheat code, Stacey. <laughs> I know, there's, there's no checklist. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And okay, so tell me a little bit more for the sake of time, um, since we're getting getting kind of far along. So tell me more about what ended up happening after you, I think we left off when you had hired eight designers. And then you eventually stayed at the company for four years and the company grew to 500 plus people is what yeah. it says on your website. Like what happened between those moments? Yeah, I mean, four years is a long time to spend somewhere. And Clover was on an upward trajectory and I am an early stage person. I love growing companies from the ground up and I and I like wearing a lot of, you know, different hats. And so at that point, you know, I had also gotten quite sick. So tangentially, like on a personal level, like I... You know, I had thyroid cancer when I was at Clover. And so that was oh, something wow. that I, you know, was dealing with. And I just wanted to take some time off. And so I ended up leaving. I left in June of 2018. And I took a year off to just spend some time on getting healthy and like reassessing what I wanted to do next and spending some time with my family and traveling. So yeah, it was more of a personal reason why I left. Oh, I see. Okay. I think one of the interesting parts about joining an early stage company is that your role is just forced to change so much so quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever wish that you'd been able to spend more time at the IC level or are you happy that it pushed you into management so quickly? 
I wish I could have spent more time as an IC, but I don't regret being a manager and being, you know, a design leader because I think I was very much pushed outside of my comfort zone. And I made a ton, I made a ton of mistakes along the way, like sure. constantly, yeah. constantly failing, not like quite knowing what I was doing, but I learned so much along the way. And I know I can always go back to it, but yeah, I wanted to get back into doing design work, which is why I'm in the role that I'm in now. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So yeah. you are at the time of this episode, you're working at Resolve to Save Lives. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, so Resolve to Save Lives is a nonprofit that was started by Tom Frieden, who was the former head of the CDC during the Obama administration. And he was also the New York Health Commissioner for some time. And so Daniel Berka left GV to join. And he was he's the director of design and he's leading design on the cardiovascular disease side. And so he called me uh, when I was still taking time off at the beginning of the year. And he said that they were looking for a designer with healthcare experience to basically do what he was doing, but on the preventing epidemics side of Resolve to Save Lives. And, you know, I wasn't really looking for a job at the time. And he was a recruiting master. He had me talk to some people. He's like, well, you know, just talk to some people and yeah. just give them some advice on what they're doing. And, you know, I talked to three people on the team and it's a small team. There's seven people that are on that are on my team. And I just really was excited about what they were doing. I think working on something that's mission-oriented is something that's really important to me. And they're working on preventing epidemics. <laughs> so that's that's pretty big. Yeah, so I decided to join and I started working with them back in March. Okay, tell me about preventing epidemics. <laughs> yeah, how do you yeah. Design, how do you design to prevent epidemics? This is yeah. like <laughs> next level step up. Yeah. Pretty big stakes. Yeah, high yeah, stakes. Pretty big stakes. Um, so what we are doing is we're working with the World Health Organization on helping countries step up how prepared they are. And what that means is there are a lot of recommendations that the World Health Organization puts out around surveillance and making sure that you have laboratories in place and also like protocol around like livestock uh, and animals, for example. And so what I'm doing is designing planning software to help countries understand where they're at, how prepared they are, and then what else they need to be doing in order to get more prepared. Um, so it's like on a five-point scale. A lot of countries that we're working with are you know, at a two, which is like not very good. So it's like, what are all the things that they need to do to get to a three and a four so that you know, they're more prepared. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Have you seen World War Z? No. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm trying to... Contagion. To, yeah, I'm trying to map this to any zombie movie. It's yeah. like two out of five on uh, <laughs> likelihood of having a zombie outbreak yeah, originate yeah, in yeah. your country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's actually like really similar to a lot of the work that I had been doing before around coordination with a lot of different people who are trying, you know, they, they have the same goal, but when you're working at you know, a government level, there are so many different departments that are doing their own thing. They don't know what other teams are doing, but they also have to collaborate together. And so it's designing software around that. It's very transferable. Yeah. But between healthcare and governments, I would assume you've gotten quite adept at navigating yeah. hierarchy and, and bureaucracy. Any tips for people that are struggling with that? You know, when I was working with Resolve. And, you know, we're working with the CDC and the World Health Organization and different country governments. I find that the design superpower is being able to visualize what 
people are saying and to facilitate those conversations and to show them like, is this what we are all saying together? And I think just doing that has been very helpful. And then I, you know, I translate what they're saying into a UI, but I think that beginning part is so important of getting the main stakeholders in the room and yeah, put those post-it notes up and put together a concise presentation that's, you know, synthesizes what everyone is trying to say and, and do it in a very simple way. And I think like that's, that's been my superpower that I've been able to contribute so far and it's helped me time and time again. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I'm looking at the resolve website and it says the the goal is to save a hundred million lives from cardiovascular disease and to prevent epidemics. Mm -hmm. So what's the scale or timeline for meeting these goals? And then how will you set the next ones? Yeah. So the funding is for a five-year initiative. And so we uh, will see where we're at in three more years. I think the initiative has been going for one and a half so far. Okay. We'll schedule a follow-up for for three years from now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, great. That's very exciting. I'm glad to have people like you thinking about how to prevent epidemics from happening on planet Earth. Uh, That (laughs) makes me feel more comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Higher stakes. Yeah. But as we reach the end of the hour, is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about or bring up that we might have skipped. Otherwise, we can move into our Cool Things segment. Let's move into Cool Things. As the guest, we will give you the opportunity to take first ownership of, of uh, the cool things if you'd like to go first. Otherwise, we can we can get the ball rolling. Sure, I can go first. So All right. I took about a year off in between jobs, and I read a lot, and I did a lot of cool things during my time off. But I think that the thing that I want to share with other designers, and if they haven't read it yet, is to pick up uh, Questlove's book, Creative Quest. Um, I've recommended it on Twitter, and I've talked to people about it. But I think I found myself in a pretty big rut when I left, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I felt like I hadn't been exploring other creative outlets when I was just heads down working at a startup and spending so much of my time there. And I think this book really reminded me about my creative roots and how to how to nurse them again. And it got me Mm. it was just a it was a really great jump start. And I'm glad I read it during my time off. And it was like, yeah, like, I'm still a creative person. And here are ways that I can tap into it again. And it was a it was a really important book for me when I read it when I did. So it's something that I recommend every designer or someone who thinks that they're not creative. Everyone should read it because I think everyone is creative in one way or another. Was there one piece of advice that stood out as being the most helpful for you during that time? Yeah, yeah. It's just like to start practicing again, start writing again, start. Mm. And I think that's the thing that you can just forget to do. And that's what you know, what can get you in a a rut is like if you don't practice it's like just start doing it just start somewhere and i'm like yeah that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) here's some good news i was just checking on audible and creative quest is available on audible for those of you who are like me and listen to books Uh, it's also narrated by quest love and several other people whose names you'd recognize like fred armison and norm mcdonald Tariq trotter yeah yeah pretty cool Amazing. I made download on Audible just so I could listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's the best way to read books, in my opinion. (laughs) Well, cool thing, Stacey. That was a cool thing. Yeah, that was good. Marshall, you want to go? 
I haven't shared this because I've been waiting for it to, to prove itself, but I feel as though it has proven itself at this point and it is worth sharing. So um, I'm going to share a YouTube channel called Cheddar. Have you heard of this, either of you? Nope, but I'm looking it up right now. They're relatively small. I think they only have like 380,000 subs at this point, which is, you know, kind of small. It's a medium-sized channel, but uh, they haven't blown up yet, but they, they continue to grow and they make amazing videos, a lot of them design-oriented. So uh, let me let me read off. A, a few of the titles of some of their more popular videos. I'll just go from most popular and down. So, How James Holzhauer Broke Jeopardy. The Real Reason for the New York Skyline Gap. The Unseen Inefficiency of Escalator Etiquette. Hmm. The Fake Sounds Companies Add to Products. A Flaw in Street Design May Be Costing Lives. Why New Yorkers Insisted on a Worse, Quote Unquote, Worse Subway Map. The human foot is a design disaster. <laughs> uh, how foot has helped shape our technology. There's all of these things are like super interesting. I'm looking. I'm I'm like scrolling through this their like popular uploads page, and there I have like red bars on basically every single video. So I've watched a lot of this stuff, and it's well produced and super informative. And yeah, like I said, it usually has some sort of design angle. Yeah, <laughs> you skipped over the one that's going to rile people up the most titled Why 3D Logos Fell Out of Favor Overnight. And the thumbnail is the old Instagram app icon to the new Instagram app yeah, icon. Yeah, sorry, I skipped over that. <laughs> I'm not trying to ruffle feathers here, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like skeuomorphism to flatism. Yeah, there's, there's some really cool stuff. So they have like three different kind of areas that they do. They do examines, explains, and explores. And each of those kind of has its own section on their channel's homepage. But yeah, explains is... So so one of these, the, the Jeopardy thing that I mentioned earlier, but like... Uh, one I watched last night is, uh, why don't buses have seat belts? Which is a really great question that I've always asked and didn't, didn't have an answer for, and they give a really good answer for it. Or like, why every TV show has a noticeably boring episode, uh, like a bottle episode? I've never noticed that. <laughs> well, the, the thumbnail for this one is the, the Chinese restaurant episode of Seinfeld, if you're familiar with that. They're, they're called bottle episodes. But anyways, yeah, explains explores and examines basically every video on on their channel is worthwhile in some way wow cool thing love it thank you what's yours brian my cool thing is a subscription product that i have been subscribed to for maybe two months now because i need another one of those but okay hit me <laughs> this will be not for you marshall <laughs> okay uh this one is for coffee lovers so if you're like me you enjoy making coffee at home but you fall, you've fallen into your old ways. You always get the same kind. You don't know what's out there in the world. You have your favorite coffee shop next door that you buy your beans from. What else is out there in the world? So this company is called Trade at drinktrade.com. And it is a coffee bean subscription service that you never knew you needed. Uh, um, so the way it works is you fill out a like flavor profile of what you like, what flavors you like. So for me... I prefer South American beans with a fruitier flavor. And then it just starts sending you new coffee. Uh, for me, I have two bags that come every week, and it's always from a different roaster from all across the United States. So for example, this week I got New York coffee, but last week I think I had Iowa and then Idaho and some California. Um, so you're getting them from all over from different roasters. And it actually ends up, I don't know how they do this, but it's for me cheaper to do this subscription than to buy them in store. So I don't think about it. I go through two bags in two weeks and uh, always have something new 
to surprise me when those two bags run out. So have you been disappointed yet? Not disappointed yet. The flavor really? profile has been a hit every time. Every single time. I haven't wow. had one that I said, oh, this two weeks is going to be rough. That's the that's the strongest recommendation. Yeah, I'm sure it's yeah. a good idea, but is the coffee good? Yeah, no, it's all been fantastic. So anyways, that's drinktrade.com. Nice little service, though. Cool. Sweet. Very cool. Cool things, everybody. Cool things. We did it. Uh, <laughs> Stacy. for people who should follow you, where do you want them to follow you or find more of your work on the internet? I'm super bad at twittering tweeting <laughs> there you go yeah yeah i just proved it <laughs> <laughs> but uh i'm uh, on twitter at stacers s-t-a-s-e-r-z that's the z for ziploc to keep it fresh <laughs> yeah if you dm me or whatever it is they do um i'll, I'll respond i'll respond <laughs> i check it every now and then well great we'll have a link to your twitter in the show notes twitter.com slash stacers yeah and yeah maybe if people mention me more like i'll get more into it but i'm not i'm not good at i'm not good at it. i'm not as good as daniel burke is <laughs> uh well who among us are though, really <laughs> Yeah, Daniel has a, a way of ruffling feathers when he so <laughs> desires. So <laughs> uh, that's not a bad thing to avoid at times. Well, Stacy, it was so nice to, to get to chat with you. Thank you yes, for taking the thank time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was super fun, you guys. That was episode 303. Thank you once again so much to Stacy Law. Be sure to follow her on Twitter. We'll have links to all of her socials and websites in the show notes, but it's stacylaw.com and stacers on twitter um, we hope you enjoyed it let us know what you thought on twitter we're at design details fm tweet at us if you have other people that you think we should interview definitely let us know we're gonna keep on having more interviews in the future and we'd love to find the best people to talk to and, and answer your questions where we are unable to do so of course thank you to abstract for making this episode possible Abstract is design workflow management for design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. It's like GitHub, but for designers. It's a version-controlled source of truth that you can try for free today on a 30-day trial at abstract.com. So go to abstract.com, sign up, get your team on board, and get that version-controlled source of truth going. So thank you again, <laughs> Abstract, for making this episode possible. And of course, thank you, Sarah and Drew, our editors and producers that made this episode sound good. They make the audio great, and they also make the audio great on the other podcasts on the Spec Network. That's at spec.fm. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm and check out some of the other shows for designers and developers just like you, including the Layout Podcast with Rafa and Kevin, another design show where they dig into the latest happenings in the design industry. Of course, if you are enjoying the show, we appreciate those iTunes reviews. Thank you again to MacGeekJ for his review that we read at the beginning of this episode. If you also leave us a review, we'll be checking in on those periodically and can read them out on the show. So thank you again to everyone for the iTunes reviews and, and the tweets in general. Much appreciated. Yeah. So that's it. We'll catch you next week in episode 304. Awesome. And we have another interview coming up soon too, Brian. Ooh, teaser. Ooh, little teaser. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but... <laughs> It's on the way, so bye. Uh, you want to hit me with this first? First, I blew up.
How about you just say it? Um, I don't know what this is referring to. Apple Tile video? The thing from the show notes last week? I don't know. You put Apple Tile video there. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you dumb dumb. <laughs> Well, I thought it, I thought it was you catching on to the same thing I caught on to. I, I wrote it while I was writing show notes last week, and I'd forgotten that I'd written it. Nope.